0: Hi, my name's Andy Chamberlain, and this is the Creative Writer's Tool Belt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. You can find out more at my website, andrewjchamberlain.com, where you'll also find out about the Creative Writer's Toolbelt Handbook, which condenses all of the very best advice and insight from my expert guests and me in one place. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Creative Writer's Toolbelt podcast, and it's helpful to you on your writing journey and welcome to episode 156 of the creative writers tool podcast now it's not often that i get the chance to talk to an author of literary fiction on the podcast most of you know i tend to focus on genre fiction especially science fiction but this episode is an exception because i'm going to be speaking to the vietnamese-born writer abigail n rosewood about her novel if i had two lives Abigail lived in Vietnam until she was 12 when she migrated first to Singapore and then to the US and she currently lives in New York. She holds an MFA in creative writing from Columbia University and an excerpt from her first novel, Won First Place in the Writers' Workshop of Asheville Literary Fiction Contest. But before I get into that conversation, I want to give you some news. I'm going to be putting the Creative Writers' Toolbelt podcast on hiatus at the end of March. There will probably be two or three more episodes after this one, and then I'll be having a break. The existing episodes will still be available, and I may come back to it at some point in the future, but I feel like I've done what I intended to do with the podcast for now. So thank you to you for listening. If the podcast has helped you with your writing, then I am delighted, and I consider that I've achieved what I set out to do. So back to this episode – Now I had a fascinating and enjoyable conversation with Abigail. We talked about some of the things that genre fiction writers can learn from literary fiction and we reflected on the importance of compassion and observation in our writing, withholding judgment within the story and what it is to be understood and healed. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed the conversation with Abigail. Here it is. So, Abigail, welcome to the Creative Writers Tool Belt podcast. It's great to have you on the show.
1: Hi, Andrew. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: I want to start by just asking you a little bit about your background. Could you tell us a little bit about what life was like for you when you were in Vietnam, when you were growing up, and why and how did you move to the US, to the States?
1: So, I was born in Vietnam, in Ho Chi Minh, and Um, You know, life in Vietnam was really a special thing. It really nurtured my sense of wonder and
2: imagination
1: Mm. and creativity. And I feel like growing up in Vietnam also kind of helped me form um, an early armor against the elements. (laughs) Um, So it's wonderful preparations for life. Um, Yes. Yeah. And so uh, I spent... You know, I spent, I lived in District 2, which is at the time was still kind of in a rural area. And so I spent a lot of time um, outdoors, you know, chasing cows and stuff like that. Sure. Um, (laughs) So a lot of time in nature. And then after I left Vietnam, um, I moved to Singapore. And then from there, I moved to the US. Okay. So I. I haven't really lived anywhere for longer than five years, um, beside Vietnam. After right. having left Vietnam I, I moved a lot.
0: Okay. Okay. So yeah. so you're now based in the States. How long how long have you been in the United States then?
1: So I have been I've been in the US for probably um sixteen sixteen years or so maybe longer.
2: Okay. Okay. Um,
1: but I've been in I'm currently in New York and I've been in New York for about maybe oh maybe it's coming up on six years now. So New York okay. is actually <laughs> the longest place I've lived a yeah. state I've lived in. Sure.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um now you're the author of a novel called If I Had Two Lives. So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about the novel and why you chose that particular title for it.
1: Sure. Um so uh the book follows um a young Vietnamese girl. Um, who grew up in a military camp in the 1990s, Vietnam.
2: Mm,
1: mm. Um, and it, it's a very isolated environment. So it follows her um, time there and then all the way up until she moves to the United States. Um, mm. And um, she continues to search for people who remind her of her childhood. Mm. Um Yeah. And so why did I choose that title? So it wasn't my, uh, it wasn't my first title. Um, Okay. It was, I, uh, so my first title was rejected by the publisher. And then after that, I kept sending in like a list of titles that kept getting rejected. (laughs) (laughs) And then, uh, so finally, you know, um, um, I kind of suggested this one, I picked it out from one of the, the dialogue um,
2: Mm, mm. in
1: the story. And I also feel like, you know, when people say, if I had two lives, it really sounds like a beginning of a wish. (coughs) Yes, yes. I I really wanted the book to have that wishful effect. um, But at the same time, um, highlights the the fact that, you know, many of the characters in the book um, do have two lives.
2: Yes. Yeah,
0: they do. So in your book, there's the, there's a number of characters and a lot of the story seems to be an exploration of the distance between people and certainly at the start between the narrator and her mother. And it's very clear the way you describe that relationship from the very beginning, from the very first moment it's presented, there's a distance between them. So you've got this distance between the narrator as a, as a little girl and her mother and then the narrator and, and her her friend who's a soldier, and then between her and Lila and John, and, and all of these different characters, there's this 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 distance between them. Would, would you agree that, that that's something that you've done with this work?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really great observation. Um, I think part of that is, so the her first most important relationship is her mother. Mm. And I think that really... Um, uh, really, it it informs the other relationship because it's the first one she is taught, and so she is t- because her mother is this larger than life kind of character, and mm. so there 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 is an, uh, an an impossibility of reaching that figure um, from the narrator perspective. Yeah, so that the, yes. their distance is really vast, but then also I feel like there's you know, the distance that each character have from themselves is also vast. Like the narrator doesn't really know who she is. Mm. And so, you know, when she falls in love with Lila, um, even though she thinks that she falls in love, but then eventually she realizes that she doesn't really know Lila despite, you know, at- loving her. And so, so there is a there. I feel like what I what I try to do is that I try to have there is love between all those all those pairs that you have named, Mm. but but it's just love is just not quite enough to bridge the distances.
2: Mm.
0: And Mm. it thinking about it now, it's it almost seems as if the the dysfunction between that, that, that narrator as a little girl and her mother, the problems, the the, the distance between that relationship, then uh, I can ex- we can expect a child not to have that level of self-awareness, but it is that character as she grows up, she, she hasn't learned. Or this, the, the, the problems that's been caused to her means that she doesn't have the self-awareness to try and understand who she is and therefore yes. to understand how she truly feels about the people around her.
1: Yes, absolutely, and I think, um, I think there, I think um, there are really good fiction that have really self-aware characters, but I am really more interested in extremely flawed characters, and mm. the more the more flaws they have, typically because they are not so self-aware. <laughs> mm. um, I think. Well, there's certainly think?
0: got a, There's certainly few of them in this book, isn't there? I mean, they're <laughs> they're a they're a they're a pretty damaged crowd. Um, but then, but uh, I mean, it it uh, people would need to read the book to to understand the kind of subtleties and, and nuances of that. But I wondered if we could just explore the kind of the the creative art and the the actual creative techniques that you've used there. I mean, perhaps you could tell us just perhaps one or two things. One or two techniques or devices or, or approaches that you've used to keep that distance between people, or to demonstrate the distance between the characters.
1: Um, I think I think one of the ways that I do that is I understand my characters very well,
2: mm. and so
1: I think you know when you have a very let's say I have a very timid narrator who is in awe of her mother so the distance is created by her personality because she's her, her yes. mother is so unapproachable to her yes.
2: um yes.
1: and so that naturally the characters you know kind of repel each other because of their opposing personalities mm. Um, mm. so the the mother is everything that the, the narrator is, isn't um and so, yeah. I think one of those techniques is to, to know, to have characters, to know them really well. Um,
0: yes. And then, yes. Yeah. That's and, it. I think that's an important point there, both because uh, th- that you've made, because it's not just we could create characters in a story who are very different. But I think unless you know your characters really well, you can't manage the authenticity of the story. You can't manage presenting them it will it, it won't work that in fact you need to understand your characters your very different characters really well to bring them together and, and maintain that distance but maintain the kind of quality of what you're doing with them
1: yeah exactly and i think like you know for example in, in this case between the narrator and her mother it mm. it would be out out of character for the mother to suddenly Want to cuddle her
2: daughter yes. or something? Yeah, that's exactly you know? it. Yes. So yeah. the
1: reader would know that and feel that, and so I think you know that that gives that maintains the distance.
0: Mm. And if you know the characters well, then that distance is believable and credible, I guess yes. as well for for the readers. Now you've called this novel an attempt to fall in love with the same people over and over again, and I wondered if you could explain to us what you mean by that.
1: Um, I think for most of us, familiarity is, um, a pretty strong guiding, guiding post to, um, our taste, to what we like, who we hate, um, what we eat, Mm. what music we listen to. And so familiarity is, you know, developed, of course, in childhood, I think.
2: Mm. And
1: so it's a human tendency to. To continue this kind of map that we have, that is created for us, um, and then and so I think it's pretty common to then you know fall in love with people who remind us of someone that we used to know or that we knew, and mm, um, mm. not necessarily a person that, that represents even qualities about people we used to love, even, but maybe people we used to hate, and then you know we end up falling in love. With mm. someone, with with the characteristics mm. of someone we hated, um, because it's familiar.
0: And um, as as you explore love, and perhaps this book, in some ways, this book is an exploration of love, albeit very flawed love, or very yes. flawed people trying to love each other. Do you think the love you're exploring is just romantic love or sexual love, or is it also love in all its manifestations is it it it, it, is it love in all in a a kind of familial sense and friendships and all all, the whole lot or how's that how does that work for you um
1: yeah I think I I think I try to explore the all those spectrum like the whole spectrum Mm, of it mm. you know the friendship and the familial and because they are all intertwined So you know, not let's say a narrator that felt like she didn't receive enough um, motherly love is gonna is gonna try to seek that love elsewhere. So it's a motivation; Uh, it motivates her, and so it ends up she ends up pouring her um, dedication and her passion into a friendship to overcompensate Mm. for the lack Mm. of connection with her mother, for example. Mm.
0: So I'm thinking now again about how as writers we manage this. I think again, it comes back to really understanding the characters well to understand how they would engage with each other and how a character might do what you've just described. So a character like your narrator who doesn't have a properly functioning relationship with their mother might then look for love and does look for love elsewhere doesn't she yes so if we think about the way in which your book examines the kind of pressures and frustrations that can can come up in in families or between children and adults how did you try to present that how did you particularly you know with your with your narrator when she was a when she was a little girl how did you try to show the frustrations that that she feels
1: well, I feel like there's a lot of pressure on the child, the situation, the, the landscape of a military camp itself is a mm. source of pressure, um, you know, for, you uh, in a in an environment that is mostly male. And, yes, um, yes. So I think that creates a kind of really uh, interesting space for, for a girl coming of age not necessarily conducive um, or healthy <laughs> no,
0: no. physically or you know, psychologically. No.
1: Yeah. And then I no. also think like the other characters surrounding her can also create a psychological landscape that puts a lot of pressure onto the protagonist, mm.
2: Mm. Um,
1: you know, particularly um, I think the mother. So I try to, I try to, I think show that through um their dialogue with with each other, and just to show
2: yeah. yeah that
1: that the mother just doesn't understand how to interact with her child. No. Um, she talks about really grandiose ideas, um like politics and mm-hmm. freedom with um a girl of seven. So <laughs> I think that that <laughs> um, yeah. So I think that's how I tried to create a sense of alienation and frustration.
0: Yes. yeah. And some aspects of this book, yeah, if if people read it, they'll see you know, they'll see exactly what I mean. Some aspects of this book are really profoundly honest. Uh, so there's okay. there's a lot of observations in it that are quite subtle, but they're very authentic. It's not quite blunt and brutal, but it is very. It's very honest about the human condition and about the way people are. So how did you go about arriving at that place where you could describe with that kind of honesty, how people are, how people think, what they do, that kind of stuff.
1: So actually one of my favorite thing about comedians is the fact that they, some, I feel like jo- their jokes are not, um, a lot of times jokes are just really honest, honest truth.
2: Mm, and mm-mm.
1: and the more honest a comedian is, the more surprised the audience feel <laughs> <laughs> because they don't expect that kind of honesty so publicly. No. Um, no. Because it, uh, the truth can be very humiliating and shameful to admit to. And I think it's so. It works the same. I think I try to do the same thing in writing is to be as emotionally honest as possible. Mm. I think it's the mm. only way to create um, good art. And. I try to be also really compassionate.
2: Mm.
1: I don't judge my characters. I I allow them room to make many mistakes, um, and I try to understand their motivation for their actions. Mm.
2: Mm. Um,
1: so yeah, withholding judgment, I think, is important.
0: That's an interesting point. I mean, actually, we may we may come back to that. But I wondered if you had to just within yourself almost approach this with a kind of sense of being disciplined about relentlessly coming back to honesty and relentlessly coming back to what would really happen how do people really feel what do they really do what do they really think was there was there a sense in which you had to kind of keep coming back to that degree of honesty with the work
1: I think so um mm. like I don't think everyone or I don't think all readers appreciate that kind of degree of like honesty maybe because mm. maybe because it's too cutting mm. Um,
2: mm.
1: but but you know I think I think you have I have to write what I love to read and that's yes, what I love yeah. from other authors is when yes, yeah, it's searing you know when when it's almost painful to confront like the the emotional honesty in their mm. work, and I try mm. to do the same.
0: Perhaps mm. for some people that is not what they want in what they read, and I can understand that. But perhaps for others, other people are quite attracted to the the relentless honesty of it. To the, yeah. they, they they like the fact that it is actually. But but it is honest. But as you say, you're not judging your characters. You're not condemning them. You you present how they behave, what they do, what they say. Um, there is a certain amount of stepping back from them that you do, isn't it? I think. I mean, some of your characters do terrible things. Um, yes. Some. Of them, some. And 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 more more generally, they nearly all do stupid things or unwise things. Let's say. Yeah. Um, but you. Uh, perhaps this is where that compassion that you mentioned comes in in that you don't judge them but you present them in an honest and perhaps compassionate way and perhaps that is the way in which we can best see how people really are
1: I think so and I I mean I think it goes for life too and you know obviously I draw a lot from life um, Mm. from true real life in my fiction writing Yes, yes but I think I think you know as to be good writers is you have to practice compassion um, mm. and an understanding of of, of people. Um,
0: so that's that's interesting. So would you would you say then that um, as writers, whilst we do have to have a kind of acuteness of observation, we do need to be very perceptive and take note of what's happening. That actually, that's only half the story, or that's a part of the story, and the other part is that actually we do. Have to have a sense of compassion for the story we're telling over the people in it.
1: Yes, exactly. Because I think once you condemn somebody, like if you just say, "Oh, this person is evil," well, then, then the story is kind of over.
2: <laughs> yeah, um, yeah.
1: You've passed judgment already. So I think, yeah, uh, I think, That's um, I think, like what I I try to do is to always complicate. My characters, yeah, um, in a yeah. way that that hopefully the readers can't say one way or the other.
0: That's also an interesting observation there. That I perhaps perhaps we'll just explore a little bit. That actually passing judgment on your characters finishes the story. Yes, I think I understand what you're saying, and I think you're right. But it w- I wondered if you could just expand on that a little bit.
1: Sure, literature is about. Presenting the complexity of life and of Mm. moments and of people, Mm. I think you know an entirely good character is not an interesting character, and an entirely bad character, villain, is also not that interesting. I think, I think what what is provocative is to to try to get readers to empathize with a character that that maybe commit horrible crimes and. And vice versa. I think just the goal is just to complicate, and I think we are all complicated people yes. as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, not not wholly good or wholly evil, perhaps. You
1: no, know, yeah. And I I I really enjoy intensity in other people's work, and so I also try to try to incorporate that.
0: Yeah. My own. Yeah. yeah. And as a as a compliment to that, there this book is full of very physical description, a lot of sensory description. So there are lots of, there are colors and there are smells, there are tastes and there is intimacy and some of it is sexual and some of it is not. And there's, and you know, people get hurt and there's injury and there's blood and there's all, there's a, there's a lot of sensory stuff going on. Um, so how do you use, how do you use that, that range, the range of senses and how, how do you present, sensory experiences and what are you trying to do in your story when you do present them
1: yeah so I once had a writing class where um the teacher taught us that when you're introducing a new character let's say a, a new character enters the scene and if you want the reader to notice and to remember this character then uh then you should try to satisfy the readers as many sentences as possible um, by, you know, including the auto sensory, um, like colors, smells, physical, physical senses, mm. things mm. that you mentioned. Mm. Um, and so I really, I really, uh, I thought it was a really good advice. <laughs> I try to, um, and I think this is the same. I try to not hold back when it comes to, including like very intense colors or smells or intimacy.
2: Mm. Mm.
1: Yeah.
2: Mm.
0: And intimacy of, of all kinds, really. I mean, we'll kind of explore one or two aspects of that, I think, in a moment. But if we, like the first half of your book, the narrator is, as we said, is a young girl. Now you've had to create the world that she interacts with, but she also has her own private world, a child's private world. So how do you... how did you create that world and how did you give your character a little bit of agency in what she does, but, and also create that world that that she lives in, in her mind?
1: I don't know what you were like as a child, but I feel like children have very private worlds and it Mm. actually takes a lot of interest and patience from adults to access that world. Um, You have to really want to know what that world is and for them to open up.
0: Yeah, um, yeah.
1: But naturally, I think because of their imagination, um, they have very, maybe multiple private worlds. Um, mm-hmm. Or I, I've heard when people say, you know, writing from a child point of view might, um, like, is it more difficult? And I actually think, in terms of agency, I think a child point of view actually does not limit what they can do at all i feel like it actually is easier to give a child character more agency because their imagination can go anywhere okay. and yeah it introduces um kind of an inherent tension into into the story because there's an inherent danger in being a little girl
2: and, mm-hmm.
1: and i also think that children have kind of the freedom to wander and a child can go unnoticed in a lot of spaces um, just because physically they're small, that yes. they can, <laughs> they yeah, can you yeah. know, hide in corners and watch things unfold that they may not, you know, that an adult may not get away with.
0: Mm. I, w- I was wondering as well, whether you thought back to your own childhood and how you were as a child and tried to observe from the distance of where you are now, what it was like for you when you were a younger child and, and then, and then apply that experience to the character.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think actually, I think being a writer to me is like keeping myself a child because it's like observing all these things with multiple layers and then not Mm. passing judgment, not fully understanding, but only a child can manage to not pass any judgment on what they're, you know, witnessing.
2: Mm. And
1: so I feel like as a writer, I really try to uh, maintain that childlike perspective uh, or observation.
0: That's interesting. So children and therefore child characters tend not to judge what's happening. They tend to experience it and deal with it simply as a child without trying to kind of overlay too much moral judgment on what's going on.
1: Yeah, I think so. I don't think that their moral compass is fully developed yet.
0: Yes, yeah. Okay. Now one of the relationships which really struck me and I thought was very interesting and interestingly portrayed in the book, your young narrator, and I I I don't know how old she is in that earlier part of the book, but she might be, I don't know, about ten, eleven or, or perhaps even younger than that. But she has a she has a friendship with one of the soldiers in the camp. She develops and I'm really fascinated by this friendship because it is at one level extremely unlikely. He is assigned to look after her mother and her, but he is just one of the guys. He is a soldier, um she is a little girl. There are so many reasons why they should not get on. But actually the sense I get is that actually he's extremely fond of her. Yes. And I wonder if you could just exp- just kind of unpack how you perceived that relationship and how you presented it what are the things that you did to present that relationship to us
1: yeah um so that's actually one of my favorite relationships in the book as well and and the reason is is the maybe is the only one that's completely free of manipulation and trauma mm. um mm. i think it the narrator is bonded to all, the, all of the other characters in the book through pain and trauma. Mm. But with the soldier, it just a pure friendship. Um, so the relationship started out primarily practical, you know, as protection, like you said, and he's kind of her teacher and protector. Um, and I, I was aware of, like, you know, the possible, you know, perhaps sexual tension that mm-hmm. a girl at, at a young age might my have with um, a young man. So I think I try to portray that or handle that as de- delicately as possible,
2: mm, mm. but also
1: maintain the innocence and beauty of their friendship. Um,
0: yes. Yeah. And I think that, is, for me, that was one of the really interesting things in this in this book, because for, for for those who haven't read it, there is a, I mean, this is a slight spoiler alert. I'm going to do it anyway. There's a scene where she she goes to his room. I think he's, he's, he's sat, he's watching the football or something, isn't he? He's just sat in his room. He's watching yes. the football. He's on his bed, watching the telly, just like someone, you know, he's just, he's just being a bloke. Um, yes. And she, at this, she, I don't know how, how old would she, so, would the character be at that point?
1: At this point, I think she's like about nine. So or, she's
0: about, yeah, nine, yeah. so nine years old. Um, and she wants to go and spend some time with him. And she lies on his bed and she, He's there watching the football and they have this really, they have a very loving, but quite carefully presented conversation. Um, And then in fact, they both fall asleep and then she wakes up. But actually there are so many potential dangers in the way that in that situation, but it is presented very obviously, by you, I think, in a very careful way. So, in fact, wonderful. It's lovely. It's just a great friendship. Oh, nothing, you know, nothing you. bad happens in it, does it? And <laughs> you, you clearly, I mean, you've you've alluded to the, or you've more, more than alluded to the kind of potential sexual tension in this, but you've taken this potentially very dangerous situation and presented it in a very innocent, loving way. Now, I um, don't know whether you agree with that that analysis of of it.
1: Oh yeah, I, I mean. Uh... I'll take it. <laughs> okay.
0: Yeah. Bank think, Matt. That's fine.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I just, I think I want to acknowledge that there, there is going to be, you know, between um, unrelated to unrelated people, um, a young man and a girl much younger. Uh, there's, there's always going to be possible sexual tension. And I think, mm you know, a lot of the dangers in society is the fact that people refuse to acknowledge that. So it catches them at a surprise, Mm, (laughs) you know, mm. and so that's, that's when they, you know, that's when the danger is committed and the crime is committed is when, because people refuse to acknowledge that. But I think when, I think in this case, like there is that discomfort um, and there, and I think she does kind of feel that. And he's, Feels it too, but it Mm. just goes unsaid. Um, But they will—they just continue to maintain enough distance to have to to have it still be innocent.
0: Mm. Um, And I think there are lots of there's lots of lessons there. I think for writers in approaching a challenging subject, a challenging scenario, but dealing with it sensitively. So if that happened in real life, I mean, at at one level, we'd, we'd all say. This is just about you know it's a bad, bad idea. This guy is just for lots of reasons. But if it did happen, from my point of view, I'm thinking that the onus is squarely on that older guy to be really careful what he does and really careful what he says, whilst acknowledging all the things that you've said—the realities of the, the relationship that they have. But that's some that's it's almost impossible. I think in certainly in contemporary Western life to explore yes. that isn't it now it's it's almost an impossible thing i think for people to do that
1: yeah it's it's really difficult i mean i, I you know with the the um, political correctness and everything mm. um, that is you know under the kind of self-censorship that people go through now mm. which
0: um, which is which is necessary i think in in many ways it's there is yes a, absolutely it's a kind of survival tactic now isn't it um yes. Now I, I kind of move on from that and and compare and contrast that scene with with the one which is in the, in the book which is probably I think the most difficult scene and is almost like diametrically opposite to what we've just mm. discussed because there is a scene in the book where another adult another male adult sexually abuses that girl and that must have been an extremely difficult scene for you to write I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you approached that and what you were what you were trying to ensure that you achieve in the way you wrote that scene?
1: I mean, I think I was able to write that scene because I had written the other relationship with the soldier that we just talked about mm. and and mm. that the, the unexplored um, sexual tension. And so, you know, in contrast, I, I wanted to show that, it, it, you know, it's like a very similar situation, but then this is, then she's confronting with somebody that, that is taking advantage of of her innocence. Yeah,
0: completely. Um, Yes.
1: And so, so in writing explicitly violent scenes, um, I still try really hard to not demonize any party involved Mm. um, because, you know, I think the action already sort of speaks for itself, but I also, I mean, it's, I still have to try to have compassion for that character (laughs) <laughs> Sounds really mm. strange, but
0: do you, is that because is that because that is a necessary element of the writing craft for you to to create that character, uh, or or is it because from your point of view personally it, it is it, it that's what you want to try and do anyway, or perhaps it's both of those things? But you want to try and have compassion even for the people who seemingly deserve none of it.
1: Yeah, I think so, because I'm really fascinated by, like, the human capacity to commit an atrocious act, but then does that same person can also, you know, have a beer, put on a shirt, um, or, you know, have a childhood that is difficult. Um,
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. And
1: so I think with that scene, like, I wanted to... I didn't need. I didn't need to add the line um, about his how his the the rapist um, father left him. Like he just when he confessed that.
2: Mm, um, mm. But
1: I I wanted to add that because I, I wanted to complicate him. I didn't want him to just be a rapist.
0: Well, um, as you said earlier, if you if you pass judgment on him, the story finishes, doesn't it?
1: Yes. Um,
0: so I think. In terms of the things that we can learn as writers from what you're doing, we can see how you are withholding judgment, perhaps with some effort from this person who's done this particularly horrific thing. But also, having read that scene, I had this, I had the sense in which, although you were being very honest and there's you know, no one's left in any doubt about what's happening here, in terms of the action of the scene, there comes a point where where these the thing is happening where you almost look away you don't you don't dwell on the detail of it at all is it? there is i had a sense of you're taking the re, the reader knows what's going on but you you're, you we we look away so we don't have to see too much of the the reality of it even though we know what's happening
1: yeah i think i try to follow the protagonist to where she would have gone Yes. Um, while the action was happening to her. Yes. Um, and yes, so, that's true. Yeah, I think I tried to be on more on her and inside her, um, rather than being like bird's eye view author like describing the scene as I yes. see it. I tried to be inside her instead. Um, so I think that's one like one way of me imagining you know that situation, um, but also. I think with violence, a lot of times, you know, depicted in fiction, I think we, it's almost more effective if you don't give, like don't um, explicitly state everything
2: Mm.
1: because the imagination is much more (laughs) like just letting the readers imagine um, it for themselves. Mm. So just give enough to inspire those feelings and, but i i don't think that yeah i don't think it's necessary to state everything out right
0: no no it it sounds like a bit of classic showing not telling almost
1: uh,
2: um, yeah
0: which is always great advice i think showing not telling although it doesn't always <laughs> apply 100% every time but in this instance yeah now your narrator has i think a, a kind of damaged and inhibited sense of her own identity and we talked about this briefly earlier can you describe how you present that how how do you how do you manifest to the reader that your narrator is damaged in the way that she is
1: well i think that she is someone that floats between cultures and countries mm. and languages mm. um and people and so i think i think that sense of unanchoredness <laughs> mm. um is how i try to present her i try to present her also with the way that she persists in staying in people's life and her her loyalty to them, despite you know maybe what they do to her, and also yeah, just like the bond that she has
2: with people, mm. Mm. um, uh,
1: and I think she uh, is a character that, to my mind, has not completely developed a moral compass yet.
0: No, um, no, no, yeah. no, she hasn't. No. Yeah. She does seem to drift around. She does kind of, I mean, all kinds of potentially moral or situations occur which require some moral judgment. And she just seems to sort of drift from one of them, not drift, but, you know, she kind of goes from one to the other without seeming to examine the consequences or the the, certainly the moral consequences of what she's doing.
1: Yes, exactly. Um, Yeah.
0: (laughs) Okay. And it seems to me as well that her most... Beneficial and helpful relationships are with older men, two particular older men. So, her, the, when she's a child with this soldier, it's in some ways the best relationship she has. And then when she's older with her neighbour, and in fact, she has a really quite an extraordinarily well functioning, generous relationship with the, with her neighbour. So, were you at all aware of the the, the similarities between the soldier and the neighbour? Is is that a thing in in this work and what were you trying to do with those two relationships?
1: Yeah. So I definitely, it was definitely deliberate. I, you know, mm. th- that's a part of why I said that, you know, it's about falling in love with the same people over and over again.
2: Because mm.
1: mm. To me, uh, the neighbor really, you know, to the narrator really mirrors her soldier. And it is part of why she just get like implicitly trusts him without Really, maybe he doesn't really deserve it. Like it's lucky for her that he's a good person.
2: <laughs> but yeah, yeah.
1: she just implicitly trusts him. And I think that that's because of how familiar he seems to her. And I think, you know, f- because she is fatherless, There, you know, there's no father in the story. Mm. And so I think it's natural that she tries to compensate um, for that void by forming relationships with older men. Um, yes, and that, yes, yeah, and I think that's that's one of the parts. you know she may not be so lucky in other areas in life, but it is um the one area that that she does meet these two people that can give her a sense of safety
0: mm, mm. What is her relationship with the neighbor how would how do you define it, and how did you present it?
1: I would say that they are both immigrants, both Vietnamese immigrants mm. and and so they are both kind of seeing in the other, seeing their own past in the other. So I think in the beginning, they don't really see each other for who they really are. You know, like he sees her as like some other girl that he was once, that he once loved. And Mm. she sees him as such a soldier. And so I think that's how their relationship began. And then they really got to know each other later Mm. on. Mm. That
0: was, uh, because that was, that was the relationship which I think probably of all of the relationships in the book, that was the one where I I kind of felt like if those two people had continued to live their lives and what would that relationship have become? How how would that have developed? I, I don't know, obviously, but that that was it. Just interested me because it was because it wasn't a stereotypical relationship; it was actually subtle but honest and, and um, complicated.
1: Yeah, I you know I I I think in life a situation like that, maybe like eventually a romance would develop. I don't know, but I think I'm more interested in unconventional relationship. Mm, Um, mm. And I'm interested in like unconventional relationship orientation. So Mm. to where, you know, nothing is really traceable. Um, And, and so that's why um, I I created that family dynamic at the end, mm. and I I also feel like what she has to work with is like she has all these broken pieces and like all the, the debris,
0: yeah. <laughs> and she so she has does. to
1: build something out.
0: Yeah, that... <laughs> I mean it is a bit of a mess at the end, isn't it?
1: Really. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. It, that's that's interesting because it it makes me think that if your protagonist and that neighbor had just kind of got together romantically, that in a sense, would have been the end of the story.
1: I think. Absolutely, I agree. I think you know. I think once you give people a solution, then yeah, that's that's the solution. Yeah. And then there's no more to explore. But it's like the potential of everything that's kind of that just left there for you to mm. wonder about mm. is more interesting to me.
0: Yeah, I wonder if it's like. It's great for the readers, but it's tough on the characters. It it almost reminds me of some of the, the in in the kind of romance genre. For, for example, uh, writers have talked about you know you get the lovers together, but they don't quite get together, and they don't quite kiss, and they don't quite get it together, get it sorted out. And the and the entertainment and the the interest is in the tension between these two physical bodies attracting attracted to each other magnetically, but they don't actually quite make it. Well, they they're, they're pulled, they're continually pulled apart by whatever circumstances.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So although there's some pretty freaky and terrible things that go on in this this story, there's also a lot of kindness and respect and certain so, different kinds of love between characters. No, nowhere is that expressed overtly and explicitly. How did you show the kindness, respect, love that characters had for each other without ever saying it? Because I don't think you're doing this, but ever.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I I think I am pretty allergic to using the word love like in <laughs> writing. Um, I think I don't know why. I think maybe that's part of my my own upbringing um, in Vietnam, you know, we just don't really say love or we don't say the word love. Okay. And so in writing, I I would do everything I can to avoid using it.
0: <laughs> yeah, and yeah. so that's a that's an element of of what you're trying to do with this, isn't it? You're you're it's perhaps it's like something something comes away from the story, so the, <laughs> the story loses something when you pass judgment, when people talk about love, when people express, you know, when it all comes out in the open, something gets lost. It's 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 hiding it and implying things that give the thing power and, a, exactly. and an engine.
1: Yeah, like it's, it's been named. And love is, you know, everyone knows how complicated and love is and how how many different yeah. types of love there are. And yeah. So, you know, naming it doesn't help. <laughs> um, it is still as mysterious as ever. So I think it's better to just show it um, and to, yes. Yes. you know, let the characters be vulnerable.
0: Do you think your characters, when they do love each other, know that they love each other, are, are- uh, and, and are they simply just not talking about it, or have they not got a clue? Do you think
1: mm, that's interesting? I never thought about that. I think they must know mm. Mm. because you know, I, I I think they know by like the degree of loss that they feel.
2: Um, mm.
1: when you know, if that character is no longer with them, yeah. um, I, I think that they at least realize it when, when it's gone,
0: <laughs> notwithstanding the fact that this. Sometimes there's not a lot of self-awareness going on in this story. Um, yeah. It doesn't, for example, your your main character. There is the sense in which, even though she doesn't understand the loss that she is experiencing, that doesn't mean she doesn't feel it. She just can't surface the surface and articulate those feelings because she just doesn't have the ability to do so.
2: Yes, yes.
0: So, other lessons do you think you've learnt as an author from writing this book?
1: I learned. I mean, for one, I learned that writing the novel didn't really cure me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's an intriguing answer. I might come back to that number.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's the one. That's one of the first. And I and then I also learned that people can get better at writing by by writing. Yes. Um. Yeah. I didn't. You know. I think it's like directly correlated to the number amount, like the number of words that I write, like the more number, the more number of pages I have, the better of a writer I become. So -hmm. having written that book, I do think that my writing on a sentence level um, has improved since then. Mm. I hope, but I, I feel, I feel that it has. Yeah.
0: Well, I think it almost couldn't help but make you a better writer. Perhaps, I mean, you, you say that the number of words or pages directly correlates to an improvement, and I think that may be true, but perhaps as well, the, the hard work of attending to the honesty of, the, of it, the hard work of delving into the characters and understanding them, and perhaps the hard work, and this could be for any writer, the hard work of writing well a difficult scene and writing well, complicated characters, I would think, is also part of that learning process.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. So, um, and
0: so, yeah. are there other are there other things that you you would take away from from as things that you've learned from writing the book?
1: I think the other thing I learned is that a novel can really go on forever if you don't end it. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, <laughs> well,
1: yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I just think that you can really edit forever and it doesn't necessarily make it better or worse, but it just that it can just keep evolving and changing. Oh, okay. So I just think that, you know, as as writers, um you just decide that at one point it has to end.
0: So just to be clear, you're not you're not talking there about continuing the story into their futures, but more taking your story and red editing and, and editing it and Keep and doing multiple edits on it.
1: Yeah, doing multiple edits or changing the plot or changing the the, the characters' decisions. Like, like no, yeah, I'm not. I'm not talking about the, their future life. No. Um,
2: okay.
1: Yeah, but I, I I do learn that you can you can shape it in a number of ways. Mm. Um, mm. Okay,
0: I was intrigued by what you said just now, but one of the things you said was. In fact, the first thing you said that you'd learned from writing this book was that it didn't cure you. And I wondered if you wanted to just expand on that at all.
1: Sure. Or whether um, you
0: want to not, or whether you don't. It's, 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 uh, this is completely up to you.
1: Oh, no, I, yeah, I'm totally, I actually wrote an essay about that um, recently. Okay. Um, but yeah, I think it just, I expected so much from from finishing the book. I in In some ways it did change me. Um, but I expected to be to be healed. Um, I expected, or not expected, but I, I hoped to be understood. Um, I hoped that it would reach people like yourself, you know, to really understood what I
2: mm, tried mm. to go
1: through. But also, I encounter resistance as well. And I think there's some really like kind of malicious desire that I didn't realize I even had was like,
0: (laughs) (laughs) what what was this malicious desire?
1: (laughs) I I, I think like the desire to be loved by random strangers um, and like seeking, just seeking that, you know, and, and it's really not possible. (laughs) So yeah, I think the, the expectations are totally off the mark. And I I realized that now, um, and I realized that it's not really about trying to cure myself, but I just have to, I have to, I just have to keep writing.
0: Hmm. Well, there is a difference, I suppose, between successfully being understood, which is a, which is a great thing in itself. And there's that. And then, but to be healed, to use the word that you use there is, is perhaps a different thing. Um. That actually to be understood is uh, is a part goes part of the way to be healed or reconciled or whatever. But that is, but they are different, aren't they? I suppose.
1: Yeah, I, I think they are different, but they like I feel like in relationships, like the feeling of feeling loved is really, really similar to the feeling of being understood.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes.
1: And, and yes. so I, I think I really wanted that but also like, I wanted the piece of art to you know for people to get it
2: yeah
0: yeah well I su- I mean I, I could I could see perhaps how this this work is full of people who have a great you know who have distances between them so all of your characters, you could lay them out on a, in a space and there is distance between them. But actually, it's also about people trying to come together, isn't it? It's about people trying to understand each other and bridging those gaps. Mm. Uh, so, so I could see, without getting too psychological about it, I could see how there's a yearning in these characters. There's a yearning under the story almost for understanding, a meeting of minds, a meeting of people and a, a sense of understanding. And that actually, that, that is a, a precious thing in itself
1: oh thank you
0: (laughs) so um we've obviously been analyzing your book and and picking at particular bits of it but if we kind of stepped back for a moment and you think of yourself as as a writer and you're talking to other writers I wondered if you could tell us what you think are perhaps the main two or three bits of advice that you would give to writers and perhaps especially writers who haven't thought about writing literary fiction or the kind of fiction, certainly the kind of fiction that you write. What are the, what are the main bits of advice that you would give to writers? Then?
1: Um, I think write for yourself mm-hmm. and um, write to write what you want to read and then write what pleases you. And I feel like the rest will come. I also recommend reading, obviously reading a lot, but I recommend reading a lot of translated fiction. Um, okay especially from small and deep presses because usually translators are often poets. And so you can learn a lot from the way a poet compose a sentence. Mm. Um, Mm. uh, So, you know, literary fiction is, uh, a lot of it is about the sound, the musicality of, of, of lines, each line. Mm. Um, Maybe, you know, that's the, I think it, that's, maybe that's the one difference between genre and literary is the, The prior uh, literary fiction prioritizes um, the sentence
2: um, Mm, over mm.
1: plot, let's say. And so, um, I think I learn a lot from reading, you know, translated fiction, like just international writers. Uh, And then I, I like to, I would recommend consuming a lot of art that is not in the mainstream or commercial, like you know, watching a lot of art house films, for example. Uh, because they're more surprising. Uh, and then if you, I think if you can, then you learn how to surprise the reader. Um, and I would say to go to the place where you feel the most pain because that's where your most compelling material is.
0: <laughs> hmm. So that that requires a certain amount of bravery, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> It's for for people to go to the place where they feel the most pain, that's quite a I, I presume that's that therefore is something that you've done with your work, is it?
1: Yeah, I think well I think I try to. I mean okay. at least I think I skirted the periphery of it at least.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah.
1: But you know, there's so many there's so many facets of you know, of a person's pain and trauma. Yes. That that is gonna take this is going to take more than just one novel. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah, and maybe that's maybe that's aligned with and connected to the, the things we were talking about to do with truth and confronting truth and being authentic. Um And even if it's difficult or odd or out of you know, th- there may be taboos, whatever. That actually, that quest for authenticity is is worth it. Yeah, I think so so are you so what are you working on now are you are you working on another novel are you what else what else are you doing
1: um yeah, so I have just finished editing um my second novel oh okay um and yeah, so and then I'm working on like just like a couple of essays here and there um sure. I'm working on a short story it's been not it's been many years since I tried to write a short story mm I actually find them really, really hard to write. <laughs> um, Cause I can't like finish stories in the short. Yeah. Mm. And so, yeah. So I'm working on that.
0: So just to finish then, how can people find out more about your work? How, remind us again, the title of your book and how do people find it?
1: Um, so it's if I had two lives. Um, so in the U S you can find it at um, most bookstores. Um mm and Barnes and Noble or indie bookstores or Amazon. Sure. But yeah. in the UK, I know that it came out from Europa Editions UK as well. I think the best way to get it is through Amazon. I don't really know about yeah. the bookstores, yeah. like what the situation is over there. Um,
0: I expect. I expect if people are really interested, they could, I mean, certainly check out your local bookstore wherever you are in the world because it might be there. Um yeah. and, and I'm sure people could order it if they wanted to. If people don't want to go their kind of Amazon route for whatever reason, but obviously. Yeah, exactly. Well. Great. Well, thank you very much for your time, Abigail. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you.
1: Thank you, Andrew.
0: Okay. Bye bye, Abigail. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Creative Writers Tool Belt Podcast. If you want to find out more about the podcast or me, just go to my website. It's andrewjchamberlain.com.